Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. This is Missing Alyssa, a podcast documentary series about the unsolved disappearance of Alyssa Turney, a teenage girl from Phoenix, Arizona. Alyssa has been missing since 2001. Hi, I'm Octavia Zappala, and this is episode three of Missing Alyssa. If you haven't done so already, I suggest you listen to the previous episodes before you continue. Michael Turney was released from prison on March 2, 2017. Not a single, local or otherwise, news outlet talked about his release, which is very surprising considering the news of his arrest made national headlines. It appears as though the hundreds of local reporters that zealously covered the story of Mike's arrest back in 2008 have all but forgotten about him. Yet, most people in Phoenix that I casually talk to about the project I'm working on remember the case well. They may not know his name, but they remember the guy with the pipe bombs even a decade after the fact. What nobody does remember, though, is the fact that his stepdaughter went missing. A few months ago, I sent a letter to Michael Turney asking him for an interview. At the time, he was still incarcerated at the federal prison in Loretto, Pennsylvania. I never received a letter back. Nowadays, he's in a halfway house in downtown Phoenix, getting ready to transition back to being a free man in August of 2017, almost 10 years after he was originally arrested. If I have to be completely honest with you, I haven't made any further attempts at contacting him. I rationalized this by telling myself that it was okay, because I've found massive amounts of material that speaks volumes about who he is. I've also read transcripts of interviews where he has answered virtually all of the questions that I would ask him today anyway. But the truth is, I actually feel relieved that I didn't need to go down that path. However uncomfortable it makes me feel, in this episode I'm going to temporarily shift the focus away from Alyssa and towards her stepfather. Whether or not he's involved in Alyssa's disappearance, Michael Turney is someone with a very unusual life story. Eight years after a teen girl goes missing, her stepfather falls under the unforgiving lens of investigators as a potential suspect in a murder-molestation investigation. In December of 2008, police, finally armed with a search warrant, ambush and detain Michael Turney outside of his home in North Phoenix in order to execute the search. The intention wasn't to arrest him, but simply to detain him during the search and to collect DNA and handwriting samples. But because they knew Mike Turney was a gun fanatic with a lot of hostility towards police, they deploy a SWAT team. For extra precaution, they wait outside for him to leave his house rather than knock at his door. When Mike walks out to his mailbox, police officers seize the opportunity to take him into custody. 
Interestingly, on his person, Mike Turney has two pistols, seven magazines filled with ammo and a knife. When I first read about that, I wondered if it was true. Because seriously, who walks down their driveway armed to the teeth? It wasn't until I read through court proceedings that I got confirmation that that actually happened. The only way I could make sense of that is that maybe Mike had seen cars parked near his home and given his notorious paranoia, was suspicious and fearful of an ambush when he went out to collect his mail. The search yields a chaotic house with guns in almost every room. There are a total of 19 high-caliber assault weapons as well as homemade silencers. Scattered throughout the house are a total of 26 homemade pipe bombs, which are explosive devices filled with steel shot and roofing nails. More than 100 neighbors are evacuated as the Phoenix Bomb Squad and ATF agents seize what has been called the largest cache of improvised explosive devices ever discovered in Phoenix. But that's not all they find. There was also a 98-page document written by Mike Turney titled Story of a Madman Martyr Lost in an Obsession for Justice and Closure in the Wrong Place and at the Wrong Time to See Things Better Not Witnessed. This writing, that has been referred to as a manifesto by investigators, seems to explain the reason behind the stockpile of explosives. We had this manifesto, kind of a to-do list, a protocol, that showed what he wanted to do. This is Detective Summershoe of Phoenix PD talking. I think we avoided a very bad terrorist attack, for lack of a better word, right. probably by days. Um, Mike had the, the means to do it. Um, he had a lot of guns, had explosives. Um, he had a, a detailed plan. The authorities pick the lock to a safe inside Mike's room and find several stamp-sealed envelopes. Each envelope contained a thumb drive with a copy of his manifesto, as well as a brief letter. One letter is addressed to Sarah, and another one to one of his sons. In addition, there are letters to three different media, and one to a psychologist, Dr. Harrington. In this letter, basically, uh, I'll read it to you. It says, to the reader, inside this envelope you will find my last writings that may give some insight how I got to this point in life that my death, vengeance, and mass murder was all I had left for the murder of my daughter, Alyssa Turney. The key phrase in that is mass murder. Mm -hmm. That's nothing about suicide. He had planned to kill a number of people. In addition to the manifesto was also a detailed plan of attack. And then when you look at the his protocol list that was found, there's kind of a, a to-do list. It's numbered and it, it specifies what he wanted to do. And it says, one, throw a firecracker over the wall, prep the van for fire, set lighter fluid papers, Three, drive to the Union fence. Four, set off smoke bombs. Five, light fire. Six, drive through the fence. Seven, shoot truck gas tank. Eight, shoot 100 rounds into the door and anyone moving. Nine, walk the truck. The, the van that's mentioned in his, his list here, that was found in the backyard. And um, it was filled with propane tanks, tires, papers, things like that. There was a a rock next to the gas pedal, which you would assume would be to help drive this van when nobody's in it. The, the wheels were packed with uh, chlorine sticks, the wheel wells. Uh, my assumption would be that, that when that catches fire, and I guess his theory would be that that would release chlorine gas. 
why else you would have chlorine sticks packed into wheel wells of a car that's loaded with flammable items. So something that you'd have to ask Mike Turney about. You would think that with all that evidence recovered at his house, it wouldn't be possible for Mike to deny his intentions, right? But he does. In the interview room with Detective Summershoe, right after being arrested, before he's even questioned, Mike volunteers that his house was messy and contained some garbage that he had been meaning to dispose of for years. He says that there were some projects sitting around the house that he had started but had never worked out. He adds that he went to gun shows to keep busy. Later, in 2009, he tells ABC News that he didn't have any bombs in the house. Only some, quote, firecrackers, end quote, to make some noise and attract attention towards the fact that Alyssa was missing and hadn't been found yet. He also says that on that occasion, he was going to commit suicide, all in Alyssa's name, to bring justice to her. I don't know how you interpret that as a suicide plan when you're talking about shooting 100 rounds into anyone moving. In fact, a quote from Mike's writings reads, To get a fleeting moment of closure through vengeance is the only means to an end the system has left me. I'm unable to just walk away again through suicide. Note that in this episode, we're going to reenact Mike Turney's statements during court proceedings, his interviews with ABC News, and his own writings. In addition, inside a bag, authorities recovered a wig, some makeup, and face paint. Mike says those items were just for Halloween. But they also found a wallet with around $4,000 in it, gas masks with canisters, chemical suits, earplugs, and a bulletproof vest. Would someone who intends to commit suicide take such precautions? Or perhaps those items were not related to the pipe bombs at all? Sarah did mention that her father had been preparing for the world to end for quite some time. But when questioned about the false ID with his picture on it, Mike says he had been planning to run away to California for years. I put two and two together, and I start to wonder. Did Michael Turney intend to disguise himself to commit mass murder, and then plan on running away, start a new life somewhere after he got his revenge? That would support Detective Summershoe's thinking that Mike never intended to kill himself in the first place. Back to the pipe bombs, though. Mike says he didn't build those, and that either way, you can't blow up a building with those. You can't kill anybody with a pipe bomb, he says, unless you stick it down their throat. But inside the courtroom, an expert witness called by the government testifies that when ignited, those pipe bombs would have caused death or at least serious injury to anyone in the vicinity, and that they were designed to inflict the maximum damage. Later on, Mike changes versions again and accuses Phoenix PD of having planted the explosives into his home. These things weren't in there. They were not in that house. I have sons that come by all the time and borrow tools. You don't think they would have noticed that? He does take credit for writing the manifesto, though, which he says was part of a book he was writing, a fictional story, and that he had no intention of following through with those written plans. But when questioned about the sections where he said he intended to, quote, kill at least a dozen union members, end quote, his answers are vague at best. Even when confronted with his own writings, he claims he has no recollection of writing those things. You're probably wondering about this union that was going to be the object of Turney's vengeance. 
The International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers is a labor union representing workers in the electrical industry, primarily in North America. Michael Turney, having worked as an electrician in the past, was a member of this organization between 1974 and 1980. Mike claims that because in the past he complained about workplace conditions and other more serious issues, union members kidnapped and killed his stepdaughter Alyssa in order to punish him. He says the killers then disposed of her body in Desert Center, California, about 200 miles west of Phoenix. Do you know why he had so much hate for these people? The International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Mike belonged to this, this union, and um, he claimed that uh, he suffered an on-duty or a work-related injury where he was, uh, he claimed it was an attempt homicide, where he's on a ladder and then another union member tries to kill him by knocking him off the ladder. And he suffered injuries from this, which ultimately resulted in him in getting 100% disability through the federal government, being disabled and suffering from PTSD, he claimed. So uh, he saw the union as, um, I guess, the puppet master of his life, and that was anything bad that happened to him was due to the union. Does he make the name of this person who tried to kill him? It's just a generic, it's the, the union. They're, they were a union member, and that this happened, and it was a union that, that planned all this. So he, he thinks it's a conspiracy, that they wanted, yeah, they, it's a conspiracy a group, against they him. wanted to kill him. And yeah, and, and that's what he's told his family for years. We'll and get he, back to that later in the episode. Authorities had reason to believe that an attack was imminent. The search warrant was served on December 11th, and the union hall was set to have their next meeting on the 15th. We found a calendar in his, his kitchen, and they had a big X on the following week, the following Tuesday, and that was the next scheduled meeting of that union. It was going to be a holiday party. That's when everybody would have been there. More than 100 people were going to attend the party that day. When I asked Sarah about what she thinks her father was going to do, she isn't capable of believing he intended to take innocent lives. I had known that he had guns my whole life. My dad and my brother shot guns, so that was nothing abnormal to me. Other than that, no, I had no idea about the bombs or anything like that. But do you think he was going to hurt people? I don't know. I don't know. Um, I just, he had so many empty promises in my whole life and throughout my brother's life. He had always kind of threatened, I'm going to run away from my kids and go live in a hole or I'm going to kill myself. He would threaten suicide all the time. So in lieu of all those empty threats, I just don't know. You just stopped putting so much weight on some of his statements. Yeah. You thought he, you thought he was just overdramatic? Or... Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, by the 10th time you hear somebody say they're going to kill themselves, it, it becomes a little less effective. Um, not to mention, you know, I would tell my brothers about it. My brothers would say, don't worry, he did the same thing to us. And this was 20 years ago at this point. Because the missing person investigation yielded no hard evidence against him, Michael has never been formally charged with anything relating to Alyssa's disappearance. But in March of 2010, he pleads guilty to unlawful possession of unregistered destructive devices in the federal district court in Phoenix. In exchange for signing the plea, the Maricopa County Attorney's Office won't file charges against him for the same offenses, and he has promised to receive no more than 10 years in prison. The case United States of America versus Michael Roy Turney ends with a defendant being sentenced to the statutory maximum of 10 years, followed by three years of supervised release. During closing arguments, Turney says, The facts presented show that I had 26 pipe bombs in my home but I was neither physically nor mentally capable of executing a complex scheme depicted in a fictitious story. Not true, responds U.S. Attorney David Pimsner. Quote, 
What we're dealing with here is a long-term premeditated plan committed by this defendant. An individual who had a plan to attack the IBEW Union Hall. An individual who did extensive preparation, including conducting video surveillance, taking photographs of the people and license plate numbers of cars that are at the Union Hall. He stockpiled weapons, including semi-automatic weapons, that was capable of firing 100 rounds of ammunition, which was consistent with his written plan to shoot 100 rounds at a door and at anyone moving at the IBEW. He constructed pipe bombs with steel shot and roofing nails for additional fragmentation, which is consistent with someone intending to increase the lethality of the pipe bomb and to cause death or serious physical injuries to his intended victim. End quote. And again, quote, he also rigged his van full of combustible materials, including propane, gasoline, other chemicals and flammable materials. The van had a large brick next to the gas pedal. All of this was consistent with the handwritten notes discovered at his residence, where he intended to start the van on fire and drive it into the Union Hall. End quote. Turney then tries to appeal his plea agreement, knowing full well that he gave up that constitutional right when he pled guilty. During my research, I've tried to understand Michael's claims of conspiracy against him by union members. There is a lot of material there, and frankly, my effort to bring clarity has only made things murkier. Every story leads to another, bigger story, and eventually brings me to a dead end. Because nothing he says can be reasonably checked out. Michael is very gifted at crafting elaborate and intricate fantasies. You know, would create these uh, narratives where he was the victim or the, the, of this conspiracy against him and that everybody was out to get him. What do you think about that? It's uh, bizarre. I mean, I, I we've talked to the union members. I mean, some people remember him. They remember him as being an oddball character, kind of weird, but nobody had to seem to have any kind of hatred of him or anything like that. I spoke with Dean Wine, business manager at the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, or IBEW, at the location that was to be the target of the attack. Dean was there in 2008 when his office was informed that a mass murder plot had been averted. He didn't know Turney personally, but this is what he has learned since. Actually, uh, uh, was an apprentice here a long time ago. This would have been late 70s or early 80s. Oh, he'd had some some go rounds with previous management and. He went to another local and worked out of there for a while, a uh, different local than ours, and uh, he had some bone to pick with the former business manager here, I guess. None of us who were in the office at the time knew him or had ever worked with him or anything. It was previous administration here uh, that he had some bad feelings for, I guess, or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was way before our time. Nobody really seemed to know much about him because he hadn't been around for a long time. He just kind of came out from nowhere. So, uh, right. you know, most of what I know actually came from the, uh, I think it was the 2020 uh, episode that they did on him. The whole thing was just weird to us because none of us knew of him, knew him, 
you know, it was it was just a little bizarre. Looking back through his records, Dean found that he did at one time receive an email from Turney. A little bit prior to uh, all this happening, he'd sent me a letter asking a question about his pension. So I just basically answered it and referred him to the people he needed to talk to. That was the first time I'd ever even heard his name. Dean describes the work conditions after they had heard the news. Uh, everybody was just pretty freaked out. We actually, you know, put up some some protective guards at the windows, you know, where the secretaries interact with people. And so we'd taken those down after he got put away. But actually, he's going to be out on uh, parole here shortly. So the bars are going back up. He tells me that some of the old timers at the IBEW knew Mike personally. He tries to put me in touch with them, but none of them want to be involved in this story. As documented in police records, some of his previous colleagues described him as a very disturbed guy with a fascination for weapons and the government. They say he sued the local union after they caught him recording conversations with other members. They remembered him as very opinionated, weird, and as someone who was difficult to work with. Shortly after Barbara died in 1994, Mike gets a job in Montana and moves there with the two young girls, possibly to have a fresh start at life. They lived in a small town called Glasgow, and Mike worked as an electrician at the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers at Fort Peck Dam. I spoke with Darren, the operations project manager at Fort Peck. In 1994, he would have been a ranger on the premises. He has never heard of Michael Turney, but he tells me that as an electrician, Turney would have worked as a maintenance staff at the power plant. Mike worked there about six months and then says he suffered a work-related injury. That was his last paying job before going on disability benefits. This is the injury that Detective Summershoe mentioned earlier. The one Mike claims that was actually an attempted homicide. Mike says his colleagues in Montana tried to push him off a 70-foot spillway when he was standing on an 18-foot ladder because of his refusal to become a union member. Regarding that accident, this is what Mike Turney said to ABC's John Quinones. That's what happened to me in 1995 at Fort Peck. Accident? Other times, jumped. My kids almost. Getting broken into the houses. My children being threatened because I wanted to push the issue. Because when this thing happened in 1978 and Glenn Ross shot Ray Duke, the vice president, I went down with Glenn Ross and a number of other people in the FBI building and gave them a report and asked them to investigate labor racketeering. It never happened. Now that's not going to make you too popular with that international who's coming here with all their little, I mean, how, who's going to hire a convicted felon for things like arson, kidnapping, assault with a deadly weapon, In essence, Mike is trying to prove that the union hired violent criminals and claims that he made a complaint about this to the FBI in 1979. As a result, Mike thinks the union has been pursuing him ever since. I included this quote to give you a sense of just how convoluted these conspiracy theories are. Their ramifications are so diverse that following through with each of them would be impossible. I have to wonder, is this a technique to confuse a listener and to dissuade them from trying to verify the stories? If it is, I have to admit it worked on me. 
Or maybe attorney truly believes in the veracity of these events. At least part of these confrontations can be corroborated by Sarah's brothers. Growing up, they witnessed many bizarre situations. Yes, um, supposedly they were in the back of my dad's car, and they remember some type of confrontation between him and another man, um, and that my father said it was union-related. And then they remember getting phone calls to the house of a harassing nature. So they remember the altercation and the phone calls. But still, there's no evidence that those calls and confrontations were truly union-related. Besides, to my knowledge, Mike never provides authorities with proof of these threats. He had been recording calls since the 1970s, yet the recorded phone calls police seized from his home don't reveal any threats made against him. Another thing that I find very surprising that was not covered in the air segments of 2020 and that very few people know is that Mike Turney actually accuses himself of having killed two men. He says those men were the two union assassins that were responsible for kidnapping and killing his stepdaughter. Their names are Charles Parsons and Gary Morris. Prompted about this confession by 2020's anchor, Michael Turney responds, Okay, let me tell you what I did, trying to meet with these people. Most of the time, the IBEW didn't want to meet with me. Period. Okay? Because they were afraid. In fact, I was warned if I got involved in what I was going to get involved in, about the politics in there, and it was very dangerous. I didn't believe it because I didn't think things like that went on in America. But after your wife gets called and various other things, you begin to catch on real quick. You get these sudden attacks, I don't know where, close misses and close calls. You begin to understand. It's a little more serious than what you thought. You realize how stupid you were because family men shouldn't be involved in this kind of stuff. Anyway, I went to meet the one Charles Parsons guy, and as soon as he, or we pulled up in the car, the guy stepped out of the car and opened up on me and started shooting. So I shot back. So Michael Turney says he kills this man in self-defense. He blames the union for killing Alyssa, and he knows this um, because uh, he claims that the union sent two assassins to kill him on separate occasions. He describes a situation where a guy follows him, uh, he gets the drop on him, and uh, has a confrontation with him, and ultimately ends up um, defending himself when the guy tries to shoot him. He shoots and kills the guy. But before the guy dies, he says he's from the union. The, the second incident involves another individual who um, tries to kill him. And this person, he ends up in the desert um, and has a conversation with him. And he says he's from the Union, and so um, Mike very dramatically talks about how he, he's grabbing the individual saying, you know, what did you do with Alyssa? Where's Alyssa? We killed her. She's in Desert Center, California. Mike, in a rage, then unloads his gun into the gentleman's face and kills him. That story sounds a little far-fetched. But what if I told you that the search of Michael Turney's home revealed he truly was in possession of a driver's license and a social security card in the name of Gary Wayne Morris? The same Gary Morris he claims to have killed. Did he or did he not kill these people? Join me in part two of this episode to find out. Mr. 
Missing Alyssa is produced and hosted by me, Otavia Zapala. Audio editing and production help by Raz Yalov. Our original music was created by Michael Fornwalt. Voice acting by Ben Reichert. The artwork was done by Michelle Reyes. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live.